0: All right, today's teaching comes from Jonah chapter one, probably again, the most famous chapter of the book of Jonah. Here we read, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and he headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish And the sailors said to each other, "Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity." They cast lots and the lots fell to Jonah. So they asked him, "Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you?" And he answered, "I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land." Well, this terrified them, and they asked, "What have you done?" They knew he was running from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Well, pick me up, throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. And they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. And they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is God's word. Most people think that the story of Jonah begins in the book of Jonah and it doesn't, it doesn't. Actually, the first time that we find out about Jonah in the Bible is actually in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 14. And there we read that Jeroboam II, who's the king of Israel from about 793 to 753 BC, Jeroboam II restored the boundaries of Israel in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant, Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath Heifer. There's a lot of interesting and valuable information actually packed into there. Because of this passage, most Bible scholars will tell you that Jonah was a prophet who was very popular in Israel during a time of great prosperity in Israel. So like in contrast to his contemporary prophets of the day, like Amos and Hosea, those guys were lamenting the wickedness of Israel and the leaders of Israel throughout their ministries, but not Jonah. Jonah was prophesying about all the good things God had in store for his people and all the military successes that they had coming to them. It made him very popular. You know, like if you are a legitimate prophet or spiritual leader and have some level of competence and you only tell people what they want to hear all the time and you never call them to repentance, you can actually become fairly popular pretty quickly and a massive following, right? So Jonah is completely blown away by the idea that God is giving him a message at this point that he's supposed to go to Nineveh and call them to repentance. And not only is that surprising to him, the next surprising thing we see in the account is Jonah says, no, I'm not doing that. I'm I'm not doing that. I'm not going. When you get to the point where God's people, and maybe especially God's prophet, looks at God's word as optional, that's when storms are coming. Like you guarantee, I guarantee there's a storm coming around the corner at that point. And there's, interestingly, there's been prophets in history that tried to do this too. Elijah tried to do this. Moses tried to do this. Jeremiah tried to do this. And God said, nope, I called you to do this. You're going to do it. Jonah's trying to get away from that. And you got to also ask why? Like, why is he refusing? He's a messenger from God. He gives you a message. Go and deliver the message. That's like your one job, right? Most people... Their initial reaction to this, especially when you start reading Jonah, is that he must be afraid. Now, the reason for that is because the people that God is sending him to is this group called the Assyrians. So the specific message that God has given to him is go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up from before me. Nineveh, if you don't know, it's one of the most ancient and powerful cities in the world at the time. It's the capital city of a nation called Assyria, which is the, like one of the major global powers. They were also notorious for being like extra blood lusty in their warfare. So sparing some of the details, uh, we have records of the Assyrians doing things like uh, surgically removing limbs from their opponents and taunting them with the limbs, decapitating people and making their family members parade around with the heads burning a lot of adolescents alive. Child sacrifice was a huge thing with them. It's not surprising that Jonah, you know, when, when God tells him to go and preach to them, Jonah knows that Israel's like a little spiritually wayward, but he's thinking, relatively speaking, we are significantly better than all those foreign people out there, right? So he doesn't want to do this. Interestingly enough, not only does he say, I'm not doing that, but he goes the exact Opposite direction that God tells him to go. So, like, real briefly, if we look at the map here, again, Nineveh is about 600 miles northeast of where Jonah is located in Gath hepher He goes, instead of northeast, he goes south and west to a port city called Joppa, which is about, uh, it's relative to uh, Jerusalem. It's about 30 miles north and west of Jerusalem. And he boards a Phoenician trading ship that is bound for Tarshish. Now, Tarshish in the ancient world, just so you know, remember, they don't have a concept of like globe quite at this time. Tarshish is the end of the world. It's not like Jonah's saying, I've got some family over there in Spain and I'm going to spend a little bit of time and hang out with them for a while. When you go to Tarshish, you're saying, I'm done with the planet, Like I'm done with life. You know, I don't want God's will. I don't want God's people. I don't want any of this. Let me fall off the planet if I can. I'm going to go to the edge, Tarshish, right? So he hops on this Phoenician trading ship and he finds himself with these pagan sailors and this insane storm comes. And make no mistake, that's exactly what happens. When you volitionally go against God's will, storms will inevitably come. By the way, this isn't that hard to prove. If you know that God has a will for you to, like, steward your body, but you don't take care of your body, you cannot expect to have good health. If you know that God wants you to treat your fellow man with a certain level of respect and dignity, but you treat fellow man with apathy, you cannot expect to have good friendships. If we know as a civilization We tell one another that just follow your dreams, follow your individual hopes and pursuits and all of that ahead of the greater good. You cannot expect to have a functional society. Why? Because defiance to God's design always brings storms into your life. Defiance to God's design will always inevitably bring some storms uh, into the world. If we violate our God-given design, there's natural consequences attached to that. Now, modern people will look at these Phoenician, you know, primitive, pre-scientific, Phoenician sailors who are like, "Oh my goodness, a storm is coming. the gods must be angry." Modern people get really condescending about that. They're like, "Well, they don't understand how weather works." These are professional sailors. Let's just, okay, start there. They understand how weather works. Ancient people understood, I think, better than modern people, that all of our actions have consequences attached to them. Ancient people, when they thought, "Oh, the gods are going to punish us for this," there was no conception in the ancient world that I can totally violate the will of my gods and my design and live a totally prosperous life. Ancient people, I think, got that better than modern people get it. And so Jonah is recognizing that. The Phoenicians, you know what they're doing? They're praying to their gods. Now, they don't know the true god yet, but they got their gods. Uh, there's the thunder god named Baal. They have a god of the sea named Melgart. They have a god of sailing named Esmon. And they're exhausting all their resources. Like, they're making sacrifices. They're praying to all the gods, every loose end. Nothing's happening. And yet they know there's still one other guy on this ship. He's below deck and he's sleeping right now. And number one, it's like, how are you sleeping through this storm? Number two, they're a little irritated by his lack of concern for his fellow man and for his lack of beseeching his own God in prayer. This is one of those interesting moments where you get pagan sailors who are more compassionate, more logical, and more faithful to their gods than God's prophet is. There are very humbling moments in life where sometimes it's because of this thing called common grace and the natural knowledge of God. Sometimes God allows the non-believing world to sort of shame believers because the non-believing world is doing better in some respects. This is one of those moments. And it's embarrassing for Jonah. It's embarrassing for God and God's people at this point that Jonah would act this way. And again, the great irony in all of this is Eventually, the sailors are going to be reluctant to bring any harm to Jonah. Jonah, the same guy who was more than happy to let a lot of harm come to thousands of Ninevites. You catch that? The sailors don't want any harm to come to Jonah, the pagan sailors, but Jonah, God's prophet, is perfectly happy to have tons of harm come to the Ninevites. You can see what God's doing with him here, right? He's humbling him to teach him a lesson. And the soldiers, What they also do, they're exhausting their resources. They cast lots to see, okay, who's the cause of this? Because again, they're professional sailors. They recognize that there isn't any reasonable cause for this. So they're trying to get to the bottom of it. They cast lots, the lot, the short straw goes to Jonah. And so they start peppering them with these questions. We need to know a little bit more about you. And it's really helpful in understanding identity formation, the questions that they ask. So specifically what they ask here is, tell us, what kind of work do you do? (laughs) What line of work are you in? Where did you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Modern people have a, a tendency to form their identities this way too. It's like a complex matrix of like social things: who am I related to? What ethnic group do I belong to? Uh, religious things: what is my belief system? Professional things: what do I do in my line of work? It's very telling how Jonah self-identifies. Did you catch what he said? Very important. This is an easy thing to miss. I'm Hebrew. And I also am a worshiper of the true God, the God who created the earth and the dry land and the sea. He first identifies as Hebrew. He only then identifies as a child of God. That's an identity problem. Jonah is what you might call like a Hebrew nationalist. Jonah's ethnicity is what is foremost to his identity, even ahead of his relationship with God, And therefore, that's why it's not surprising that because Jonah has clearly some kind of idol of nationalism, you wonder why? Why is he so elitist? Why is he so uh, self-righteous? Why is he so? I mean, let's be frank, racist toward non-Jews, because he's got an idol of nationalism. Does he know who the true God is? Yeah, of course he's a prophet of God. He knows who the true God is. He has an idol of nationalism. It really struck me honestly this past week because I've read a bunch of different things. There's a ton of things in the news recently about if you read a lot of social commentators about the rise and the fear of something like Christian nationalism, uh, for some of you that you aren't going to know at all what I'm talking about, I've read a lot of things recently. In fact, the number one selling Christian book on Amazon uh, for Christian Protestantism is a book called Jesus and John Wayne. It's largely about the rise of Christian nationalism in America. In other words, it's a criticism of the fact that there's a lot of Americans who sort of, due to bad theology, falsely equivocate America with like a New Testament Israel and it's just bad theology and it hurts people. And uh, actually, I was listening to another, another podcast I was listening to this past week. It was just a news podcast, it's not even a religious podcast. It's by a lapsed Christian, though. And he was breaking down in tears talking about the rise and the fear of Christian nationalism. There's a lot of people in our country right now who self identify as Christian, and yet they're really scared about the way they see society going. And when people get scared, they tend to do some desperate things. And so they grab for power in ways to potentially hurt other people. It's not surprising that the rest of the world is a little bit fearful about things like the Christian church today. I understand why. I sympathize with that. Well, Jonah's doing the exact same thing. He's God's people, he's God's prophet, and yet he has an idol that leads him to be willing to hurt other people in his Jewish nationalism. And it's yet at this point, when they pepper him with all these questions, and he has to explain himself, that it starts to dawn on him what the issue is. And uh, he's like, yeah, I caused this. Like at some point, like it just becomes very clear to him, like, yes, I'm the cause of this. And he also realizes that the only potential solution to it, you're going to have to throw me overboard. By the way, this is also why we know that Some people have suggested maybe Jonah is like depressed and he's he's committing suicide here. If Jonah was suicidal, he would have thrown himself overboard. He doesn't do that. He says, you need to throw me overboard. What that is, is it's very clearly some level of ownership and saying, I did something wrong. I defied God and it brought a storm into the world. And actually the storm that it brought into the world actually is hurting other people too. Make no mistake, self-inflicted storms that we bring through our defiance to God, they don't just hurt us. They hurt the other sailors in the boat of life with us too sometimes, right? Jonah's finally owning that. You know, he's, he's, I think he's like weak in faith, and it's, it's clearly not very mature. But nonetheless, this is a genuine act of repentance in some respects. Now, he's a sinner and a saint. It's complex. But moving forward, at least at this point, he's sort of owning it a little bit. And he's saying, God, I understand. I violated your will I have hurt my relationship with you. I've hurt my relationship with other people, humanity. I've not been compassionate, and I've brought a storm into their life uh, as well. Every adult Christian has to learn this lesson. Children need to be taught this lesson by their parents, but adults need to learn. If I do life on my own terms instead of on God's terms, my life is going to implode at some point. Like, it's going to have storms in it. And again, the great irony, there's many ironies in the book of Jonah, His whole deal at the beginning was he didn't want to go and preach God's word to a bunch of pagan Gentiles that he thought didn't deserve it. So what does God do? He flees the opposite direction, and he finds himself in this moment bringing the truth of God into the lives of a bunch of pagan Gentiles. He went the exact opposite direction as where God told him to do, and yet he ended up doing the exact thing that God had called him to do. You know what that means? You cannot outrun God. Like, he's already has his mind made up. You either hop on board his ship or you don't, but he is going to accomplish his purposes through you. So you might as well submit to that and come to, like, an understanding of that. Now, the final verse in the whole text, verse 17, says that when Jonah is thrown overboard, the waves immediately start to calm. And it says God appointed a fish to come and swallow Jonah whole. And he exists in that fish for three days and three nights. And this is usually, you know, the, the spot in the story where, especially if you're new to church and new to Christianity, this is one of those things where you're kind of looking sideways and saying, does everybody here buy this? Or am I the, am I the only one? This is, as skeptics, this is a top five, maybe top three story of things that they look to and they're like, I cannot buy the historicity of the Bible. Let me give you two quick things in response to that. Number one, if you call yourself a Christian, that means by definition you believe God raised a dead human being from the grave three days later. If you believe that, there's nothing illogical about believing the story of Jonah. So at least be logically consistent. The second thing that I would say is, for anybody who says like, yeah, I can't believe the Bible because it's just not accurate on this kind of stuff. Just let me, you know, there's a lot of scientists out there that would debate the validity of a human being living in a fish So we know there's a lot of large sea creatures that are capable of swallowing humans. A number of them, like whales, are able to go up and periodically get air. So theoretically, you could exist in that. I would also encourage you to research the curious case of a guy by the name of James Bartley, uh, who in 1891, he was an apprentice seaman who fell overboard on a uh, fishing ship. Two and a half days later, he was cut out of the inside of a sperm whale, alive, and existed. Now, if you dig into this a little bit more, one of the things you'll find in the research is that 25 years later, one of the wives of one of the sailors said that it was all a hoax. Even while a bunch of other eyewitnesses to this said it was a legitimate account, like it actually happened. Here's my point. Whether or not it's true doesn't matter. The fact that it's still debated suggests it's plausible. And therefore, anybody who wants to dismiss the Bible or dismiss a story like this outright by saying stuff like that can't happen, I would just encourage you to you know, maybe doubt your own pre-existing assumptions. Like, I think every thoughtful person should occasionally take a fine-toothed comb to the things that they hold but are yet still unsubstantiated in their lives. I would also say anybody who properly recognizes, huh, that whole three days and three nights thing sounds oddly familiar. It's supposed to. Now, we're going to get there in a little bit, but years later, Jesus is going to speak to a bunch of Pharisees, and he's like, This is a really wicked generation. It's super skeptical. And because it's so skeptical, I'm only going to give it one sign. He says, I'm going to show this generation the sign of Jonah. Specifically, what he says is, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What does that mean? At the very least, What Jesus is suggesting here is there is something about this story of Jonah that is supposed to push listeners into expecting that there's a spectacular lesson that can only be resolved in the person of Jesus, the sign of Jonah, right? Okay, what does this all mean? I got three real brief lessons I want to share with you before we close out. Number one, the sin of running from God. So very clearly, Jonah says himself, verse 3 and verse 10, I'm running from God. You have to ask yourself, Who's the antagonist in this narrative? Who's the bad guy in the story? It ain't the Phoenician sailors, because they're more compassionate, more logical, more faithful to their gods than God's prophet is. It's not even the Ninevites, because we haven't even met them yet. The bad guy? It's the preacher. It's the super religious Jewish guy. It's the guy who is moral, very religious, and quite frankly, leading a church And what that means is you can be moral and deeply religious and leading a church and still be running from God. How do you run from God? We asked that earlier. If God is omnipresent, how on earth do you run from an omnipresent? Does does Jonah not know that God is omnipresent? Well, you know, give him a little bit of credit. In verse 9, he says, I worship the God who created the dry land and the seas. I think Jonah understands that God is not confined simply to Israel. Here's one of the areas where our English translations don't do us a lot of favors because almost every translation will say Jonah ran from God. It doesn't say that. In Hebrew, it says Jonah ran from the face of God. That's a big concept. That's a much different thing. Jonah is not running from God spatially. Jonah's running from God relationally. God's face is not about God's space. God's face is about intimacy with God. Jonah is running from the idea that God's will should be central in my life. And that is extraordinarily relevant. A lot of people who actually know God is out there, but they nonetheless, in their own particular ways, run from God's will as central to my life. Jonah, by the way, you know, I think he's probably pretty good at, like, keeping the commandments. I don't know. As far as I can tell, he hasn't probably committed adultery. He hasn't murdered anybody. He hasn't stolen. He hasn't lied. He probably goes to church a lot. He gives an offering. He gives to charity. And yet, this guy needs to get converted, Because his whole identity is wrapped up in this idea that I'm a successful moral prophet of God's people and he needs to get converted out of this. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh because if he goes to Nineveh, it might be successful, but that might mean he's not this elitist prophet from Jerusalem. He's not this elite prophet from Israel. In other words, If God's word works, and this is what Jonah is really afraid of, he's not afraid. A lot of people think he doesn't go to Assyria because he's afraid that they're going to hurt him or something like that. No, he's actually afraid of the opposite. He's so full of pride. He's afraid God's word is going to work. They're going to repent. And if God loves the Assyrians, that means that if God loves the Assyrians and he loves them as much as he loves the Israelites, then God doesn't love the Israelites because they're better than everyone else. God loves the Israelites just because God's loving And Jonah can't accept that because he's too self-righteous. I mean, this gets the very definition of what is sin. A lot of people think sin is like doing bad stuff. That is a very childish understanding of sin. Sin is running away from what you know is God's will for your life. And that also means grace is when God hunts you down, he runs faster than you, and he rescues you from your own self-destructive will. Sin is running from God. Grace is God running to us. God doesn't just run to us and save us from our sins. He runs to us and saves us from ourselves. By the way, you can't ever really know who you are, and you can't ever grow beyond the current version of yourself unless you understand the ways in which how you are currently personally running from the face of God. Each of us struggles with doing it in slightly different ways, but every one of us struggles with doing it, right? It's the sin of running from God. The second point here is, well, okay, how do you get awakened from that, the rebirth of religious people? So this is where, you know, it's it's really helpful to have, like, gain, like, pastoral experience over the years because you start to see patterns in God's people, not just in each person you know, as the years go by, but in God's people in general, as the years go by. One of the things, for instance, that I've noticed over the years of being a pastor, no one has ever, people come and confess a lot of things, no one has ever come to me and confessed, I get way too much out of my identity, out of the good things I have in my life, out of what I do, out of my relationships, out of my kids, out of my whatever, And I don't get nearly enough identity out of the grace of God and being a redeemed child of God. No one ever confesses that. No one ever confesses, I live way too much for the affirmation of fallen humans than I do for the affirmation of a holy God. No one ever confesses, I have this really destructive behavior in my life. You know why? It's because I don't actually trust that God knows what is best in order to make me happy and satisfied. And I feel like I got to do things my own way. I've never met one person who's spiritually aware enough to confess that stuff. And you know how God reveals it to us then? He sends storms into our lives. Because storms, like, when they rock the boat, it completely forces us to revisit the things that we believe about the world. The things that we believe about ourselves or what we believe about God. He sends those storms, and this is the process of spiritual rebirth, even amongst people who have maybe been kind of religious for a lot of their life. The only way that it can happen is God has to humble you by allowing some level of storm into your life. And then God has to allow you to have some acceptance over this. Now, what does that look like? Did you catch how the storm stopped? The storm stopped when Jonah got, gets thrown overboard. But why does he get thrown overboard? What precipitated that? He owns his mistakes for the first time. Here's what he says. I know, I know, this is my fault. This great storm has come not just into my life, but upon you. No one ever overcomes their self-inflicted storms by blaming other people and blaming God. The only way you can come to overcome self-inflicted storms is when you own it and you accept it. And it's like, "Yeah, I've brought this into my life. God, I've defied your will. and, and, and I, I can't blame you, I can't blame others. This is, this is on me. You know And it's interesting, too, because um, how do you get out of this then? Acceptance, by the way, is, is a powerful concept, even in like secular counseling, you talk about acceptance and grief recovery and that sort of thing. The reason Christian acceptance is so much more powerful, however, is because in secular counseling, what you're trying to do is accept negative circumstances. That's important, but I don't think it's enough for humans. You need to accept also, what have I contributed to this? You have to accept the holiness of God. You have to accept the grace of God. You have to accept the sovereignty of God, that even though I've made a mess of things, God is so much bigger than my mistakes that he can even take my mistakes and work them out for good and bring about the conversion of pagans at sea, right? That's, it's much more powerful. That's Christian acceptance. The final step in this, however, is that Jonah has to experience the grace of God. Now, by the way, it's it's, talking about storms. It's interesting. A lot of, for instance, young adults will come and say, and Christians of all ages, I don't know why God is allowing this to happen in my life. You know, Um, I thought a loving God would—I thought He loved me, and I think He wouldn't. and, And I'm like, well, I don't know why He's allowing it either. But let's look at the Bible and see why God typically allows storms. So let's look at like a story of Jonah. Would you say God is sending the storm because He wants to punish Jonah? I don't think that's accurate. I think it's much more accurate to say because God loves Jonah so much, he's allowing a storm in his life that will redirect his path, right? Accepting that is accepting the sovereignty of God. So spiritual rebirth comes first. God allows some storms that humble us. Two, we accept what we contribute to that and we accept that God is bigger than those storms. And number three, you have to experience the grace of God. Now Jonah, at the end of this, he's sinking down into the depths of the ocean, and clearly there's something of a mirac- we said that it was plausible before, but I'm not saying it's likely. God clearly a miraculous nature. God has appointed a fish to swallow him, and he's going to spend several days there. What are you thinking for three days in a fish? You know. Well, we find it out in Jonah chapter 2, and we're going to get there next week, but Jonah is amazed at God's grace. He's amazed that God hasn't given up on him, that he wouldn't just let him die. He's amazed at God's capacity for love. And what that means, this is the first time in Jonah's life. His whole life, has he known the holiness of God? Yeah, he knew the holiness of God. He was preaching about the holiness of God to an entire nation. This is the first time in his life that he's experienced the grace of God. It's one thing to know God is good, and like intellectually. It's another thing to experience God's undeserved goodness in your life, and that alone is transformative. Human beings don't get spiritually reborn or spiritually reawakened by becoming more moral. Human beings, including people who are religious, become spiritually reborn when they encounter storms that God sends, when they accept the reality behind those storms, and when they taste and see that the Lord is good and how undeservedly good to him he is, despite those self-inflicted storms. That's where spiritual rebirth comes from. That's where spiritual, every adult Christian who is spiritually mature has gotten to the point where they understand that experience of grace. Uh, Which brings me to the final place. You know where you go to find the ultimate pool of like living water of God's grace? It is on the hill of Calvary. Because you know what happens there? It's like... Jesus is thrown in like the ultimate storm. I mean, that phrase, the sign of Jonah, it's so profound. Like the idea that he's telling a bunch of Pharisees and skeptical people, like the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. What what does that mean? Well, you have to ask the question, what can cause a guy who clearly is like this self-righteous, racist, religious person to, by the end of this story, die for foreign people? There's some kind of, he learned something. There's some kind of transformation. And for that matter, what can cause you to transform? What can cause you simply to come to accept that the storms that exist in life are not so big that they're going to kill you, but that God will eventually quiet the waves and get you to dry ground? The only way you can come to believe that and truly believe it is if you see that Jesus took an ultimate storm so that you can get through the lesser storms of life, right? At the cross, Jesus got thrown into these raging storms Waters of God's wrath and sunk, and nobody came and saved him. And he sunk all the way down to the bottom of hell because he loved us. And he wanted to throw us the life preserver. And he's switching places with us because he loves us that much. It takes a little bit of courage to believe that. You know why? Because you can talk about like vague notions of God's general love for us, but until you recognize how much you don't deserve to be loved, there's no way you're going to understand the depth of God's love. Anybody who doesn't understand that Jesus died in our place for our sins cannot appreciate the depth of God's love because you can only know how much someone loves you on the basis of the depth of how far they're willing to go in order to rescue you. And God went from heaven to earth and sank down all the way to the bottom of hell so that you could be with part of God's family for all eternity. Like, that's how much he loves you. Now, it takes humility because God saved me, a sinner, But to the degree that you understand that, you will be overwhelmed by the grace of God. And there is nothing in the ocean depths or in outer space that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He ran from heaven to earth for you. He's running to you right now to inevitably carry you to the shores of heaven. So accept the storms, you know? Like, there's storms in this world. Accept them. And praise his name in the middle of them. Because you know because he took the ultimate storm, eventually this is going to come to an end. The waves will stand still and you will not drown. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, if any one of us is currently running from your face, please come right now to find us. Help us accept the storms of life with praise and confidence knowing that you've already calmed the ultimate storm out of love for us. May this glorify your name. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.